This week on Writers, Inc. Um, I think it's kind of different every time, and it's also changed through my life. When I was a younger writer, before I was married or anything like that, I would go on writing jags. You know, I spend a lot of time outlining before I start writing, but then I, when I can't stand to outline anymore and I think I've got it figured out, then I just go, go, go. And then at some point you toss the outline out because it's got a life of its own. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. So, J.D., you staying warm up there? I, I am. Um, it's funny because we, we just had somebody here from a, a propane company trying to figure out how to get to our tank because uh, it's on the side of the house and there's, you know, like a, a just giant mountain of snow, which is, you know, I, I mentioned last week, partially my fault <laughs> in, in front of the house. But like he, he's, he's, he was standing out there in the, in the cul-de-sac holding the end of his hose and just staring at this thing because he's got to somehow get over it. And uh, he must have given up because he didn't actually make it to the propane tank. Um, and we, I mean, it's, it's for the fireplaces, so it's not a, a huge thing, like if it doesn't get filled, but, um, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been chilly. I mean, I woke up a couple of days this week where we were in negatives, um, you know, for the, the feels like temperature. And I think the actual, like, you know, was like six or, or seven or, or something crazy. What about you? Is it cold over there? Yeah. It, although I, I feel bad for, for the folks in the South who aren't used to this. I mean, it's just pretty much February for us. Uh, yeah. but I, I had that. You know, another moment today where I went out on my run and I think it was three degrees and the feels like was like 10 below. And, uh, and I walk inside and I'm, I'm starting to do some stuff and there's water hitting my my chest. And I'm like, oh, great. Is there a leak or something? <laughs> like, No, it was, my beard was frozen and it was defrosting oh, when I no. came inside. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, yeah I, I think we kind of take that for granted. Like I've moved around the country a lot in the last few years and, you know, like coming from Florida, you know, like if they get hit with anything below like 50, like the whole system gets completely out of whack because, you know, they're, they're just not equipped for it. But, you know, 100 degrees is no problem for them. Um, up here, it's, you know, the exact opposite. Like half these houses don't even have air conditioning, um, but they, you know, there's there's enough heat being generated to launch a rocket. So. <laughs> yeah, and I, I had no idea that the state of Texas had its own power grid. Yeah, I didn't either. How'd that happen? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> leave it to Texas, right? To be independent in, in every way. But like, I wonder if that, I wonder if that contributed to any of this because it doesn't seem like any other Southern states had the severity of the power outages. I'm sure it did. I mean, like here on the island, we had our own um, water system up until I think six months ago is when they finally tapped into the, the local city you know, across the water here. Um, and, and they had tons of problems, you know, just, just because they, you know, they don't have the infrastructure to really maintain it. You know, it was probably great when they first put it together, but then, you know, population grows and time passes and equipment starts to wear down and they just, they can't hold it together. So I, I imagine the whole power grid in Texas is probably held together by, you know, shoestring and bubble gum and, you know, a couple 80 year old guys that, that still understand how it works and the rest of them don't. And, um, yeah, I'm sure they're going to revisit that whole thing. Um, cause I mean, that, that's no joke. I mean, when pipes start to freeze and you're just not equipped for it, you know, people are burning whatever they have to, to stay warm. That that's crazy. 
Yeah, yeah, and those are life-threatening temperatures. I mean, we're we're sort of joking about it as northerners, but when you get into single digits, like people die from that kind of exposure. Yeah, I mean, like I, you know, I, I do stupid stuff. Like I, I just take the garbage cans out, you know, the on Sunday, and you know, like I went out without a coat. I just threw my shoes on and, and dragged them out. And it, you know, it's just down the driveway. It's a couple hundred feet and back. But like I was freezing my balls off by the time <laughs> I walked back through the door, you know. And it, and it was only a couple minutes. I was out there for maybe five, ten minutes, you know, with, with no jacket on but long sleeves, you know. So, yeah, it, it gets you quick, you know, if you're if you're not ready for it. Yeah. Are you, are you getting ready for a book launch? I am one one week actually less. Um, it's it's coming up on uh, on Tuesday, so I guess the day after this airs, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, it'll yeah. be tomorrow if you're listening in real time. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that that'll be interesting. I've got um, BookBub is doing a, a featured new release on it, um, which I I don't think I've had before. So we'll see how that goes. I know it goes out to their their entire thriller list, which is a couple couple million people or so. Um, we're working on a television spot that that's hopefully wrapping up in the next day or two, and we'll be able to get that out there and, and, and going, and then um, you know doing some of the usual suspects as well as you know Facebook and and Amazon ads. Um, so we'll see how it goes. But yeah, we've had a, a lot of interest. The reviews on it have been great. Um, it, it's 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 one of those books where I, I wrote it right after I finished up with Patterson, and it's just it's the the pedal is just down to the floor for the entire thing. I think a lot of people just put it down when they're done, and and they just have to take a breath. You know, like I I didn't give anybody a chance to really breathe through this book, and. Um, uh, for better or worse, you know, that, that, that's how it goes. But it's, you know, it's one of those where they tend to read it in one, one sitting and then just put it down and go, finally, <laughs> like, nice. fi- finally are, relax. So, Are you positioning it as like a mainstream thriller? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a straight up, um, I mean, it's, it's being touted as Die Hard meets talk radio. Um, so it's it, you're just shooting for, for that general mass market for thrillers. Nice, nice. And this is... Uh, you are publishing it in the states, correct? Yeah, I'm putting it out here in the states and in uh, in Canada and uh, the UK. Um, then I've got a, a slew of other publishers around the, around the world. Um, you know, Random House is putting it out in I think Germany and a few other places, and then a, a number of other ones. Um, Altogether, all we've got uh, I think it's 30 different languages, about 150 countries that are that are covered. And, and somehow I ended up I'm, I'm being published in Bangladesh. Which, wow. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I don't, I don't even, know how you do that. I, I don't either. Like my agent actually, she sent me an email yesterday and she's like, I don't think I've ever had an author published in Bangladesh anymore, but we've got an offer for this book if you want to take it. <laughs> so I figured, hey, why, why not? Let's, let's see what happens. Bangladesh. Cool. That's exciting. So you'll yeah. have to re- report back to us uh, uh, probably in a few weeks when you have some of the results of the, of the launch campaign. Yeah, I'm not sure how many Barnes and Nobles there are down there to, to <laughs> you know, for book signing. So I don't know if that's going to be on the tour or, or not, but we'll, yeah. we'll see how it goes. Um, and I got to set the record straight on something because I got a ton of emails after our, our interview last week with Matthew McConaughey. Uh, Matthew McConaughey. I, I, I am not the ghostwriter that he reached out to. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, a lot of people thought that that that's you know what happened, and that's how we got him on the show oh, and, and that kind of that's thing. Funny. But no, I, I have never once worked for the New York Times. I've got no interest in working for the New York Times. And <laughs> I've ghostwritten plenty of books. Um, you know a number of them for celebrities, but Matthew McConaughey is not one of them. He, he did that one all by himself. Yeah. I, I also want to, uh, I, I want to tag along on that and just uh, thank everyone who reached out to me after, uh, after that interview, I got some really great messages, encouragement. Uh, it, it felt like a win for all writers to kind of have some of that stature on, on the show and talk about his process. And uh, I just really appreciate everyone reaching out who, who did. So thank you for that. Yeah, great guy. I mean, just the, the, I'm just in awe of his process. The fact that he was able to put that book together the first time out of the gate like that, like that, that's just so impressive to me. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, man. There, there's a business lesson there too because he's Matthew McConaughey. Like he does not struggle for recognition, uh, or, or no, people know who he is. And and I was doing a little bit of uh, 
little bit of research yesterday and he's been on dozens of podcasts for this book. I mean, dozens. Um, and, and not just writing podcasts, but uh, like health and wellness and internet marketing podcasts. And I mean, everyone from Jordan Peterson to um, Chris Sedgwick, like I, I think it's a really savvy business play to recognize in this day and age the power of podcasting and the reach that you can have with that. And if a guy like Matthew McConaughey is doing that, I think that's a really good example set for, for everybody. Well, I think the you know, publishing industry, because of this virus, for better or worse, they're, they're pivoting. You know, they're, they're realizing that this is a, a viable outlet and, you know, it wasn't on their radar before. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely getting, getting flooded with, with requests. I mean, we're, we're getting, you know, phone calls and, and emails for, for people that, you know, I, I wouldn't have expected to be on a, on a show like this. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's becoming more mainstream. And I, I think too, what's, what's been, uh, what, what the evidence is, is, coming in now that podcast listeners are extremely loyal and they take action. So it's even if you have a, a small podcast, even if you only reach a few hundred people, if those few hundred people have a powerful word of mouth leverage or they, you know, they open their wallets or they're very dedicated, that can really move the needle. And I think that's, that's a very different paradigm than sort of the more traditional billboard style advertising where you just throw a ton of stuff at it and see what sticks. Yeah, and also if you think about it, you know the the way it's consumed is is so different. You know, most of these you know celebrities, you know, if you, if you go back a couple of years, somebody like Matthew McConaughey or, or whoever, you know, they would be on Entertainment Tonight, they would be on these you know daily talk shows and things like that. And the, these are shows that most people you know either watch in real time or you know they or they don't watch. You know, I don't, I don't think a whole lot of them get binge watched or recorded and, and watched later. Um, and and podcasting is obviously a very different environment because you know now you've got something that people are consuming when they have time and. You know that that's key because they're consuming it when they have time. I think it's got a lot more focus on it. More more of their attention is is being held by that that particular thing than it might be on on some of these other other venues. So it's it's really interesting to see all of this stuff evolve. Yeah, and w without going too deep down a science rabbit hole, uh, you know, I I know that video is really big right now, and there are a lot of people who are saying video is important, and I recognize that. But there's something different about listening and and podcasts like if you uh you know a, a fetus can hear the mother's voice in the womb and the sense of hearing is the last thing that goes before someone passes away so i think there's some biological component to this um that that ties into that uh, that makes people who listen to podcasts really pay attention to what's being said yeah absolutely so uh, continuing in the hollywood tradition we've, we've got another good one this 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 week we do yeah, um, we have John Lee Hancock uh, on the show, and uh, he is the, uh, I think we mentioned last time, the triple threat of the writer, director, producer for The Little Things, uh, which is out now on uh, HBO Max and also in theaters starring Denzel Washington and, and Jared uh, Leto. So this is going to be a fun conversation. Yeah, this guy's got some great movies behind him. If if you know if you're listening and you get a chance, just hop on Google and just throw, throw his name in there, and you're going to see him. And he's got the founder is one of my my favorite Michael Keaton movies um, about the the founding of McDonald's. Um, Highwaymen, The Alamo. I mean, he's he's got a laundry list of movies date, you know dating back through his career behind him. Um, I've been watching this very closely, and I think a lot of other people are too, just simply because of the way that it's it's being released. You know, that this year Warner Brothers is putting everything out on HBO and HBO Max uh, for one month. You know, along with the the theaters. 
Um, so Wonder Woman was the first big example. Um, and I, I just pulled up the numbers because I wanted to kind of get a handle on where these things are, are at. Um, this past weekend, Wonder Woman did $1.3 million. Um, overall gross is 41.8, uh, which is horrible pre-pandemic. Um, but in, in today's world, that's actually very strong. I'm, I'm actually surprised that people are still going to the theaters. I, I, I don't know who those those people are, but people <laughs> I are, don't know are, either. <laughs> yeah, there's there's people still out there doing it. Um, little things. It's um, I, I think it's what third week or so that it's been out now at, at this point. I think it came out um, in early February. Yeah. So it it, it did 1.8 million, almost 1.9 at the at the week over the weekend in the box office. So in, in actual theaters again, um, and its total gross is is 9.6. And um, that, that 9.6 is obviously just theater revenue i'm not quite sure how they you know how, how they're going to calculate you know the hbo you know views or you know I, i'm not sure how that's going to work I'm, I'm guessing at some point they're going to factor that in somebody paid somebody something for this to happen um so it's probably offsetting some of these dollars but you know e- even that i mean 9.6 you know as compared to some of the other movies that are out there that, that's pretty strong yeah yeah, it definitely is. So why don't we take care of a little bit of housekeeping and then we'll get to the interview. Uh, just a quick reminder that the Writers Inc. survey must be completed by 11.59 at the end of the month if you want to be entered to win a one-on-one with JD. And the installment plan for the Career Author Summit taking place in Nashville in September, that installment plan ends at, uh, at the end of February as well. So this is sort of your last chance for both of those items. Uh, make sure you go ahead and make a note of that. And we also want to both recognize and thank our wonderful sponsor, Kobo Writing Life. They empower you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. Uh, You get to set your price, keep all your rights, and you get to take advantage of their monthly promotional opportunities. All that and more is at KoboWritingLife.com. All right. Well, here he is, John Lee Hancock. Uh, So thoughts on Tom Brady. Is he the greatest football player of all time? Um, it, it's hard to argue against that. <laughs> that's for, that's for sure. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of always been ambivalent about, about Brady personally, didn't hate him, didn't love him. You know, was not a real Patriots fan, but you gotta give him his due, man. That was some performance. Yeah, it certainly was. Uh, do, do you think growing up as a football fan in Texas that, you know, you, uh, it's hard to root for him? Um, Maybe a little bit. He's just so dang perfect. It's uh, <laughs> it's obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'm I'm only half joking with that question because you know you uh, you have you come from a football family. You clearly have an interest in the sport. Uh, wh- where did that come from? Do you think? Um, my my dad played in the NFL, and I had a brother that played in the NFL. My other brother played. Um, in college, uh, but didn't go to the NFL. So I grew up around a football family. My dad was a high school football coach. Uh, you know, it's religion in Texas. So <laughs> you grow up in that culture. I played in high school. My scholarship offers were limited to smaller schools and junior colleges. And I thought, I don't think I'm ever going to get paid for this. So I think I probably should just go to college and study. That's that's probably not a a, a bad decision. Uh, what what position did you play? Um, center and defensive end. We were a smallish, high level school. Um, so yeah, we had some some scrawny linemen, and uh, but but we were actually very good. Made the playoffs and all that good stuff. Oh wow! All right, so. Uh, some inter- interesting history there, but uh, yeah, I think I think you made the right call and sticking with the artistic uh, endeavors. Um, 
I absolutely love the little things. Uh, I'm so excited to talk to you about it today. Um, I, I've been catching up on on a lot of the interviews you've been doing, and uh, you know, I know that you know you started writing this 28 years ago, and and uh, and you know, really kind of came back to it, and you decided to keep the movie set in in L.A. in the 1990s. I was wondering if maybe if you could talk a little bit about uh, what significance or role the 92 L.A. riots had in in your interpretation of the story or even in the process of it as you were writing it. It was, um, there was a whole lot going on. When I moved to L.A., we had um, the Night Stalker, you know, Hillside Strangler. It was all that kind of brewing. Um, this was, when I wrote it, it was pre-rampart um and and so there was there was just a lot brewing with culture serial killers cops i mean and that's kind of all i recall to be honest um and what um what year was rodney king uh i think it was 92 yeah you may be right um I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, it probably sounds about right. But I remember thinking about this in terms of pre-OJ, pre-Rodney King, pre, you know, all that. Uh, That's why I said it in October of 1990. Right, right. Yeah. And I I know that you talked a lot about um, wanting to, it it turned into a period piece because, uh, you know, 28 years later, but it was contemporary at the time. And that you had sort of made the decision in looking back that you wanted to keep it a pre-DNA, a pre-cell phone story. Um, can you can you explain a little more detail about why that was important to you as far as storytelling goes? Yeah, I mean, it, it would have saved us some money to make it contemporary. And the story could have worked in a contemporary setting, but I didn't feel like it would be as good. I mean, for several reasons. One being it was pre-DNA. Uh, and so it was harder on cops and um, it was pre cell phone. So it was harder on cops. You had to carry a, a roll of quarters around with you and know where pay phones were. Um, also, there really wasn't prevalent CCTV uh, uh, to utilize in an investigation. But one of the other things was I just felt like the light was different and it gave us opportunities cinematically um, to take advantage of that. I mean, when I moved here in the late eighties to LA, even a sunny day had a haze because of the smog. And there was kind of this weird filter that it put over everything. And so I just felt like the light is different in LA today than it was then. And John Schwartzman, our our DP and myself uh, talked a lot about that and embracing all that. So, you know, yeah, it cost us a little money in the long run. it was worth it, I think. Do you think L.A. was more hedonistic at that time, or am I just judging with an outsider's perspective? Oh, I think it, it probably definitely was. It was, um, there was a lot of, um, I don't know, uh, everybody doing their own thing. There's no doubt about it. Um, and it was, it felt more, in some ways, more dangerous and gritty and 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 in some ways more alive uh i mean the i i wrote to specific locations because i lived in a crappy apartment in hollywood at the time and you know the 
I've said it before, but the, the flop house that I picked out for Joe Deacon was an actual flop house. And, and now I think it's a, it's either a parking garage or a Whole Foods. I have to double check. <laughs> a Whole Foods. That, that would, yeah, that would be about right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When, when you were uh, originally drafting this story uh, decades ago, were you aware of sort of the obsession redemption theme that you were working with Joe Deacon? Um, or was this something that just naturally came out of your process? Um, no, it was, it was kind of all baked in. I mean, when I go back and read the script, I looked at it and there, none of that changed. So it was kind of baked in. I wanted it to be, uh, yeah, it's a story of obsession, of obsession and redemption. And, um, it also has, you know, a hint of, uh, Western civilization, Christian allegory. Um, and I, I just, I don't know. I just, I just knew I wanted to do something that in some ways embraced the genre of serial killer and psychological thriller and, and those kind of things, but also kind of subverted it in the third act to come up with something that was, I don't know, a little more existential so that, you know, I wanted it to be a movie you had to think about and not in a frustrating thumb your nose at the audience way, but in a way where, you could you could continue to talk about it and what does this say about me the viewer you know that i have these these certain ideas about guilt innocence uh, right wrong those kind of things I, I love the fact that you use the word subverting the genre because it it certainly does uh break some of those conventions in a, in a very good way I, I believe and uh is that do you think you would have written that today or do you think that was that was part of your age at, uh, or at that time, possibly? That's a good question. And I don't know the answer, but what I do know is that I had, even though I was a fan of psychological thrillers and, and, and those genre films, especially from the eighties, um, and there were exceptions to this, but I think for the most part, a whole lot of them lured you in with clues and disconnects and you're trying to figure things out and it's an interactive experience with the audience and then you'd get to the third act and you would identify the good guy and the bad guy and um the good guy would chase the bad guy and there would almost always be some kind of big action set piece that was unnecessary and then it looked like the good guy was going to to lose but then he would get the upper hand and kill the bad guy in some morbid fashion and that was the end. And I always thought that those third acts weren't nearly as interesting as the first two. So I wondered if I could come up with a different third act that hopefully would be just as fulfilling and ask more questions instead of tying it up in a neat bow. Did you care about any of the potential blowback you might get for that decision? Yeah, no, I knew. I, I always knew. I knew that some people, you know, would embrace the genre up front and then go, wait, you didn't tie it up for me. I, this is what I expect. And I'm not degrading those people in any way. Everybody has their own taste. But I knew, I, I mean, I told, I told Mark Johnson, our producer, we were making, and I said, look, this, there's going to be a lot of people that are just going to be pissed off. Um, and, and again, I hope I'm not, you know, we didn't thumb our noses at the audience, but instead made them think about what the movie was, was really about. I mean, there was a, a, you know, back in the day, I mean, Warner Brothers owned this forever. It was an original idea of mine and it was set up there. Um, but back in the, in the nineties, an executive there told me, he said, we love the script. We'll make the movie. You just have to change the third act. We have to know 
It has to be good guy vanquishing bad guy. That's what movies are about. And I said, well, I can't really do that because that's the whole reason I wrote the movie. Exactly. Now, I don't expect you to answer this for us, but do you know in your head if Albert Sparma was the killer? Um, you know what? I, I, I don't know back when I wrote it if I thought yes or no, but I've been so kind of in the middle around it. And I look back at the script and there were an equal number of things that pointed to his guilt and his innocence. And I tried to um, not be coy, but, but, you know, present something that made you think, yes, he's the guy. And then, you know, a little bit later, you find out some fact that, that points to or explains that in a way that you go, maybe he's not. Um, I know that when Jared and I first started meeting about it, he told, he asked me, he goes, is he guilty or not? And I said, I don't know. And I don't really care. That's not what the movie's about. Um, and he said, because I have to decide for myself, you know, what I think. And I said, I, I think that's great. Whatever you decide is fantastic. Just don't tell me. <laughs> Did he honor that? Yeah. Oh, oh, good, good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, in, in one interview, you said that uh, you hope this movie uh, raised some questions for people. And the one that really stuck out at me is you said, uh, the question you pose is, what do we owe our fellow man? Uh, I'm curious as to what you, you, John Lee Hancock, think we owe our fellow man. Well, it's, I, I think... Um, respect at the start it had i mean that has to be earned but i also think that we need to give people um a chance i think we're so much a culture now of just excluding people for a variety of ridiculous reasons um and and saying they're not like us and i think this movie or they're not like me um and this movie was very much kind of a rorschach through the character of Sparma for the viewer. Um, would you be friends with Albert Sparma? Would you cross the street if he were coming your way and get, get out of his way? Um, he's obviously a misfit in some ways. Um, and I remember being on set with, with Jared in, and when he was in costume and in character, which he stays in all the time, and nobody knew it was Jared Leto or he was an actor. And he would walk around and talk to people. And it was amazing to see how many people just said, no, I'm not talking to that guy. And then you'd have the one guy who would engage in conversation. You start to worry about that person. You go, <laughs> why is he attracted to Jared and or, you know, to Albert Sparma? Um, so I think it says a lot about us. I mean, that, I've had, you know, I gave the movie when we were in post to many friends to watch and every cut I would get and do different friends, writers and directors to watch. And one of them who's a very, very well-known writer director, uh, I asked him, do you think he's guilty or innocent? And he said, I really don't care. I'm just glad he's dead. <laughs> and, 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 and so that says something, it's like, you know, this, this misfit he's guilty of something. So that kind of prejudgment, um, I don't know, was an interesting thing to look at. He was a charming misfit. Yeah, he, he doesn't quite understand why, you know, he thinks of himself as, as charming and funny, and he doesn't quite understand why other people don't think he's as charming, as funny, and as funny as he thinks of himself. Is it, 
Is it true that Jared did not want to be in the room with Denzel and Rami uh, early on until they were on set? Yeah, we had a conversation about it and he asked that and he said, I'll do whatever you want. Jared's fantastic, a great partner. Um, but he said, I'll do whatever you want. But, um, but I think there may be an advantage to introducing Albert Sparmer to them, you know, in, in character. And so I talked to, and I spent a lot of time with Denzel and, and, and Rami in a room together because they were partners in this thing. And we would read scenes and adjust scenes and things like that. But the very first time that Denzel met, um, you know, that Joe Deacon met uh, Albert Sparmer, they were in character. And it was very electric, I have to say. I think it uh, inured to our benefit. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, it certainly feels that way on, on the screen, uh, definitely. Um, the... Uh, your writing process, I, you know, you, you're a triple threat on this film, uh, you know, writer, director, producer, but you've been writing for a long time. Can you take us inside your process? Is, is there a certain time of the day, a certain place, a certain tool that you use to write? Um, I think it's kind of different every time. And it's also changed through my life. When I was a younger writer, before I was married or anything like that, I would go on writing jags. You know, I spend a lot of time outlining before I start writing, but then I, when I can't stand to outline anymore and I think I've got it figured out, then I just go, go, go. And then at some point you toss the outline out because it's got a life of its own. And I would go on jags for days and, you know, work all night and sleep a couple hours and get back to it and all those kind of things. And then you get married and you have, and we had kids and, and, you know, you go, well, I want to be involved in that part of life. I don't want to miss that. So it's it, it, you I became a little more of a nine to five writer so that I could do things like drop the kids off at school, pick them up, uh, coach baseball, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And so it just kind of adjusted, you know, and then but that's not to say that sometimes when I'm when I'm when I'm working, I'll, I'll feel like I'm getting good work done and I'll I'll work into the night. My kids are in college now, so it's less of a problem. Yeah. Yeah, I know you have to make those adjustments when your family's younger, for sure. Yeah, yeah. The uh, do you have a, a a particular tool? Are you longhand uh, computer Final Draft? Uh, what do you use? I, I I usually start out longhand. All my uh, outlines, I get a, a big a big poster board, and I mean I'll, I'll make scratch notes longhand, and then I'll lay out a poster board, kind of laying it all out with thoughts and stars and all that kind of stuff so that I can look at the whole movie. And then um, it, it depends. Sometimes there have been times when I've said, okay, now I'm going to go and I, I use Final Draft. Now I'm going to go write it and start writing. I've got it all laid out. And then other times I just feel more comfortable writing on a legal pad, you know, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll go, I'm going to write the first 10 pages on a legal pad just to see how it's shaping up. So I would say it's a mix mix of all that. I mean, um, I just adapted uh, Stephen King, or I'm in the process of adapting the Stephen King novella, and uh, it was like I spent three months just going over and over and over it, and making notes and making notes and making notes. And when I'm making notes, sometimes you'll go, "I'm just going to write this scene. Nobody nobody cares. I'm going to sneak up on it a little bit, and I'll go. I'm going to write this scene just to see if I've got the voices right. And I would write a scene. So I just keep all those notes, and then you know eventually go to the computer. It used to be that. And then when I when I do a draft, I'll print it out and make handwritten notes all over it. And then I'll go page to page with it. I see. So that big poster board, does that help you with the sequencing of the scenes as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's broken down uh, via act structure, whether it's three acts or five acts or whatever it is. And uh, scene by scene, important dialogue. Don't forget to do this. I mean, it's, that's why I get a big, a big poster board is I can write lots of little notes about it. So it's not just three by five cards because I mean, people use three by five cards sometimes to lay out a script for themselves. And I get that, but I like to look at the whole movie at once mm. um, as opposed to going, where's that other card, you know, later. So. Right. Right. As, as a writer, are there um, uh, authors or screenwriters or masterworks that you've studied or learned from in, in your career? Um, I mean, you know, you, you, yeah, I've got lots of lots of writers I admire. Um, I would say one of the most important screenwriters for me early on, when I started, you couldn't go to a bookstore or there was no such thing as online where you could order books on screenwriting. I mean, you had Sid Field's book and that was about it. Um, so being able to get my hands on scripts and there was a place in Burbank way back when, when I was in Texas, uh, I was practicing law and writing scripts at night. And there was a place in Burbank that you could call and send a check to, and they would then mail you a script. And they got all their scripts because they would get paid money to people who worked at assistants at agencies or at studios or whatever. And they would sneak scripts out and give them to them. And they would make a bunch of Xerox copies of, we've got Die Hard, you know, or whatever. And uh, so you would order these scripts and that was just gold. Um, but I remember... For the first time reading like William Goldman and understanding that he had a particular voice, because when you're trying to when you're trying to master format, if you will, it's almost like learning chords on a guitar. And it's what you do between the notes that's more important. Um, but at first, you're just trying to play, you know, House of the Rising Sun. Or <laughs> yeah, Louie Louie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and so seeing William Goldman and some of his scripts, how he had an approach that I, I don't, I don't, I don't try to match. I don't, I don't try to emulate, but I learned from it that you have your own particular voice with regard to inserting you yourself into the format and letting the format work for you, as opposed to when you write your first scripts, it's, you're trying to figure out the format. And, um, but William Goldman had a way of putting his arm around you and telling you a story that was pretty amazing. Yeah. How much of your voice is your character's dialogue versus the whole work? It, I mean, you, I mean, I know that there are some writers that are, that are very famous and they're, and they're, and sometimes their screenplays and work, everybody talks exactly the same with the exact cadence and those kind of things, which is great because it's clever and all that. And they're looking for something I think that's not realistic necessarily. There, there, you know, there are a lot of favorite movies I have that are old, old movies where back then you didn't want people to talk like your neighbor. You know, you wanted Cary Grant to talk the way no one's ever talked before, um, because that's why you go to the movies. I don't want my life. I want an escape from my life. And there are some writers that still have that kind of view of it. And that's and that's great. And, and sometimes it works perfectly great for a movie. For me, I just I'm always trying to find a different cadence and a different musicality to the different uh, characters' voices. Um, so, I mean, I'll, I'll just do a read through to make sure that, you know, over and over and over, not even thinking about who's saying it, do these lines sound alike? Um, and that helps with the character for me too, in terms of drawing the character. 
Um, you know, do, do, they, do, they, do they talk fast? Do they have lots of ellipses and pauses? Um, do they stutter? Um, you know, what is their behavior? Um, are they forthright? Are they reluctant? Um, and just trying to Im imbue those, those qualities into characters on the page. Excellent. I would love to bring our conversation to a close and ask you about uh, what's on your horizon. So you mentioned, uh, you referenced Mr. Herringen's phone. Uh, is, is that sort of your, your, your current project? And what's the status of that at this point? I'm, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm turning in a draft tomorrow. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, it's, it's set up at Netflix. And I had a great experience with Netflix on The Highwaymen. Um, and uh, it's through uh, Blumhouse. And uh, so they've been great partners in this. So we'll see. Hopefully they like the script. Um, I'm also teamed with uh, Skydance and with um, Apple TV and uh, a co-writer, Becca Brunstetter, who is a fantastic playwright for, um, this is going to sound weird, but um, it's an updated outside the box version of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma. Um, it's it's got like a a little bit of Friday Night Lights in it and a, and a little bit of magical realism in it, and it's got music that people don't break into song, um, and so Rodgers and Hammerstein they they opened it up to us and said you can do whatever you want, you can change characters, you can keep characters, you've got the rights to all the songs if you want to rework the songs and make them different, if characters you want to change the any racial components or gender components or whatever you want to do just do it. And so Becca and I spent several months together just talking on almost a daily basis about this and what we wanted to do. So um, that script has is, is just been turned into. Oh, fun talk with John Lee. What'd you think, man? Yeah, he really brought me back to, to L.A. And it's funny because like the good old days in L.A., he's bringing up riots and serial killers, and <laughs> <laughs> all, all this stuff. But it, it really does paint a picture, you know, like if you think like the movie, the movie has has it all from that standpoint, you know, like it's really just a, it captures it in a bottle that that particular time frame because it's come and gone. And, you know, it's sort of like the noir stuff from from L.A. back in the 50s and 60s. Like there's certain periods that you know are just captured and, and they, they pass and then they, they go away. And, you know, this this is it's not the L.A. of today anymore. Um, and and I, I totally understand the attraction of, of writing something in that that time frame, you know, where, where there is no DNA, um, you know, there's no cell phones, there's no computers, there's no, you know, hacker that's on the, the police payroll that's going to jump on there and, you know, solve the crime for you. Like the, the cops had to be smart. They, they had to really understand what was, you know, everything that was going on. They had to, you know, just really dig in there. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, police officers in today's world, they're, they're spoiled. You know, it's it's gotten easier to solve crimes because of the tools that are out there. Uh, it makes me wonder what would happen, you know, 10 years from now if, if all those tools were suddenly yanked away and, and they had to rely on their actual wit again to, to solve a crime. I, I don't know how many of them would actually be able to do it. <laughs> well, it's funny you mention that because our, our buddy Patrick O'Donnell, who was on the show, just started a, a podcast. I think it's called Cops and Writers. Uh, and I, I'll, I'll bet he's talking about those kinds of issues because you're right. Like it, crime fighting ha has changed a lot. And, uh, and it, it was funny uh, when I asked John Lee about, you know, the, the, the timing of it, because for those folks who don't know, he, he wrote that 
as a contemporary thriller in the 90s. Right. And, uh, and it took, you know, 20, 20 plus years to, to get to the screen and manifest. And, and so it became a period piece. And it kind of worked in his, to his advantage in that he didn't have to deal with a lot of the, the new technology, which may have changed his story. Yeah, and you know that happens all the time. You know these these scripts get picked up and they they just sit on somebody's desk or they bounce from desk to desk or studio to studio for for years and years. And usually when they get around to making them, they just update the the timeline and and move on. It's it's pretty rare for them to actually you know consider going and, and just keeping it set as the way that it was. Um, but I, I'm, I'm glad that they did. I, I think, you know, it's one of the reasons why my last couple of books, I've, I've set them a few years back and, and writing them just because it's a lot more interesting, you know, to, to try and solve a crime, you know, back in those days than it is now. It's, you know, the technology just makes it so easy. And I think it, it makes it, you know, from a reader's standpoint, it takes a lot of the fun out of, out of the, the process. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I also wanted to mention one of the, one of the, the, the really, um, interesting elements of the conversation was, the fact that John Lee Hancock is and was a family guy. Um, and, you know, I, I loved him talking about not wanting to go to that dark place and that story with little kids because he knew he would sort of bring that home. Uh, and, and the idea of balancing his writing around his family life as someone who has been in Hollywood and, and been in the, in the industry for decades, hearing him talk about managing that was a really uh, really eye-opening perspective. And I think something that gets lost when we, when we put creators on pedestals, we tend to forget that they're just people too. Yeah, it's funny. I, that I, when I was listening to that, I just did an interview um, in Spain, um, well, over Zoom in Spain, um, with, with my publisher and a bunch of reporters over there. And they were asking me about the 4MK trilogy because the final book just came out over there. You know, it's been out over here for a while now, but it was oh, just released right. just released there. Um, and, you know, like, since I wrote that, you know, I've, I've had a daughter. And, you know, one of the things that came up was, you know, like there's a number of girls that die, you know, throughout these books. And, you know, thinking about it, I don't know that I could write those books again, you know, with, with an actual child now, like having my own daughter, like it, it completely changes your, your perspective on everything. Um, and, and also like what he was saying as far as, you know, the balance, like you just pointed out, like that is so huge. I mean, I, I worked a corporate job for, for years and years before finally, you know, pulling the trigger on the writing thing. Uh, and I'm, I am so thrilled that I am actually here in the house with my daughter every single day. Like I, I just ate lunch with her, you know, like she's outside. I can see her through my window playing in the snow with my wife. Um, you know, I, I'm not missing a single thing. You know, like she's, she started saying milk today instead of milk, you know, like little, little things like that, you know, like these are all the things that all my buddies missed as, as their children grew up because they were in an office and you know i'm just i'm absolutely thrilled that i get to see it yeah you're fortunate and uh and good for you for sort of being intentional about that because you only get one shot at that and then it's gone yeah yeah the, the vocabulary thing is is really killing me because she's got so many cute little things that toddlers say and like every day you know another one just tends to disappear and she started spelling her name yesterday you know like uh, she's just she's growing up you know like so so quick yeah awesome well yeah i Great conversation with John Lee Hancock, total pro, uh, really easy to talk to, incredible creative and great movie maker. And uh, hopefully everyone is either, well, I don't know if I want to encourage them to go to the theater, but you've got to watch the little things. So maybe get HBO Max and, uh, and watch it. It's a fantastic movie. Don't want to spoil the ending. I love the ending. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a really fun conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of intelligent people, we've got Zach coming up next. <laughs> we do yeah yeah we've got a uh we've got a uh, a topic-based episode we um did a little shifting so if you were expecting it this week don't worry it's coming next week uh but yeah we're gonna uh we're gonna be talking to zach and i think we're gonna be talking a little bit about 
how do you craft stories for different mediums? So, so beyond novels. So it should be oh. a fun conversation. Great. Can't wait. To our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.